So for those of you guys watching online, from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name is Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. If God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And now I just want to take a second and pray for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. And that is truly great news. And we thank you that we can gather here. Um, Lord, for, uh, for Jason... Cheese gel and his family, God, I, I pray that uh, as they get ready to go back to Papua New Guinea um, at the end of the month, that you would protect them, uh, encourage them, protect them from discouragement. Lord, um, for our leaders, uh, for, for President Biden, I pray that you'd help them to make good, just, judicious decisions. I pray for a special grace in his life. I pray that you'd protect him. I pray that you'd protect his mental faculties. Um, and God, Help him. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, Space Force, uh, those serving both at home and away, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, um, and we pray, Lord, that you would save them, because so many of them, they, they, don't, they don't know you, they don't love you, they don't, they don't walk with you. And Lord, for the persecuted church, um, for the Christians, Lord, who are in chains, who are in prisons, we pray for them right now. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. For Pastor Wang and, and Pastor John in China. Lord, we, we, we rejoice um, at, at recently hearing that Pastor Yusuf was released from prison in Iran. And yet there's so many others, Lord, that Lord are, are in chains in some of these most persecuted countries, Lord. For the Christians in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in the South Sudan, in Eritrea, in Somalia, in Nigeria. And so we remember those, as the author of Hebrews instructs us, we remember those right now. We remember those as if in chains alongside with them, increase their faith and strengthen them. And today, Lord, I, I pray that you would give me a fresh filling of the Spirit, that I would say only what you want me to say, that I wouldn't say anything, Lord, that you don't want me to say. If there's something I need to say, and I have no idea what that is. Maybe I haven't even like practiced or thought about it. I pray that you'd give me a word today. I, I pray, Lord, that I, you would just keep me from error that you would free us from distraction, that you would free us from anxiety, and that we just hear from you. That you just give us like the, the attention span right now just to hear from you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us now. We pray this in your great name, amen and amen. It has been a, a long time since we have been in John's Gospel, um, but we are in John's Gospel. Uh, this is the 25th sermon I have preached, part 25 of our series in John. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 8 today, verse 31. That's where we left off. I think it was back before Thanksgiving when we were in John. We took a brief pause because of the Advent season, um, but we are back. And if you're here for the first time, you should know we really, really love expository preaching. Just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just breaking down the story. And so I want to jump right in. Chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And what I think is super interesting right here about verse 31 is that Jesus is talking to these people who believe in him. Right? See that? It says right there, believe in him. These are the same people from the previous verse, chapter 8, verse 30, who believed. 
And, and now here again in chapter 831, we see the word believed is used both in 30 and 31. So, so there's no ambiguity about who these people are. They're people who have believed. In, in other words, if they have already believed, most of the time we would assume that they're his disciples. Would we not? Do you believe in Jesus? You're like, I believe in Jesus. Great, you're one of his disciples. You're one of his followers. That's what we would do. That's what we'd be prone to do. He doesn't say that. Nor does he assume that. And this isn't the first time something like this has occurred. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, there is a similar instance uh, where we see this type of belief. Where we see this type. And, and that is the type of belief that believes, but not in a saving way. And I don't, I don't think this should like shock us because we know that this type of belief exists. Or, or have you not heard that it was said? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 7, verse 2. So we know this type of belief exists. And so, so what we have here is Jesus is addressing people who believe and yet who don't believe. He's addressing people who believe and yet they don't believe, as one commentator notes. And I quote, clearly, they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. This is a most dangerous spiritual state to recognize that truth is in Jesus and to do nothing about it. Means that in effect one ranges oneself with the enemies of the Lord. End quote. And, and as you can imagine, this creates a very important question, and that is, well, how do you discern between these two types of belief? And thankfully, Jesus provides us with the answer right there. He says, if you abide, you're truly my disciples. If you abide, and that word abide, it means to, uh, to hold, to, to remain, to stay, uh, as in you don't leave. That's what abide means. Hold, remain, stay. You, you, don't, you don't leave. It means just because life gets hard, you don't quit on Jesus. Just because your schedule gets busy, you don't check out on Jesus. And the reason I stress this so much is because just about every single person will go through, at some time or another in your life, this valley and this season of discouragement, periods of spiritual apathy in which you don't want to abide in Christ, in which you don't want to hold on to Christ, in which you don't want to remain with him, in which you actually want to leave and in those moments when we are being tempted to go because maybe life's just gotten really, really difficult, really, really hard, in those moments, the very answer, the very solution, the help that we need, it's not found in leaving, it's found in staying, it's found in remaining, it's found in abiding, and oh, that God would help us to see that. For some of you who haven't been abiding, who haven't remained, who haven't stayed, perseverance is the mark of true faith. Perseverance is the mark of real disciples. Perseverance of the saints is the mark of genuine believers. And I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus, oh, by the way, he's never really interested as far as like priorities go in multiplying the number of converts if they're not genuine believers. Like he's never really interested in having the most church programs. He's never really interested in having the highest giving per capita. He's never really interested in conducting the most baptisms or having the greatest number of church members. He's never really interested in having the 
the greatest worship team, the best sound system, or the tech team, or any other metrics that we often use in translating, oh, that must be a good church. Jesus, rather, is always focused on genuine disciples, not pretend ones, which is why he's so adamant in John 8 that his true disciples are going to be the ones that abide in his word. And so... He finishes this thought in verse 32, and he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And I remember growing up, my father, who's not a Christian, uh, he would love to quote this Bible verse at me. This would always be sort of his way to excuse and to justify being mean or hurtful in this almost comedic way. So long as he incorporated like some element uh, of truth, it was okay then. He'd be like, well, I was just telling you the truth after all. I mean, doesn't that always know what the good book says? Right? The truth will set you free. So let's just get this straight right now. Um, the, the context is very clear that the truth that Jesus is referring to, the truth that he is referring to is what he just stated in the previous verse. And that is, true disciples know the truth. And they know the truth because they abide in his word. And the effect of abiding is you get set free. And so there's an implication. The implication is some people are not free. And this would include the type of people who believe that he is addressing right now. See, see what, what Jesus is saying here is it's inflammatory and it's only going to get worse. Um, and, and that's because Judaism taught that the study of the law makes a man free. And, and now he's pushing against uh, the grain. Now he's going against the, the, the prevailing cultural thought by saying this. And it continues in verse 33. And he says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Maybe you can hear their tone. They're a little peeved that he would even say this or suggest this. And so the thinking of the people that Jesus is confronting goes something like this. If Jesus is offering us freedom, then he's making an assumption. How dare he make an assumption? He's assuming that we're currently slaves. And so they respond, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Now, is that true? Uh, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, Rome, all at different periods held the Jews in some form of, of slavery and political subjugation. And here's the takeaway from their response. If you don't deal with reality, if you ignore the garbage in your own life, you'll start rewriting history. And this is not the first time that they've done this. I remember, remember what happened after the God sets them free with Moses and they leave Egypt. I mean, they've been out of Egypt for like a hot minute and they're like, man, Egypt was so great. We never should have left Egypt. Man, yeah, Egypt was just the, the best ever. It's like, man, my life was so good before I was a Christian. I could sleep with whoever I wanted. I could smoke whatever I wanted. I could drink whatever I wanted. Man, my life used to be so good before I was a Christian. Man, like my life used to be so good before I got married. Man, back when I was single, I could do whatever I want. Like, here's the thing. If you don't deal with reality, you will start rewriting history. And the spiritual component of all of this is that most people today, they think of themselves as free, and they're not. They're still slaves. And so he says, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They just told him in the preceding verses that they are free. And he says, nope, you're not. You're not free. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is confronting them because they have this false illusion of freedom. When in fact, they're not free at all. And when it comes to this topic of of slavery, you, you have to understand that first, that to be a slave means to totally be under the control of another and unable to free oneself. So, like, slaves don't free themselves. That's why they're slaves. And you say, hold on, hold on a second, Joe. Hold on. Um, you're arguing, if I'm hearing you correctly, that you can't free yourself if, if you're a slave? Th- then how can you possibly ever get free? And the answer is, you, you can't. If you're a slave, you're always going to be a slave. You can't free yourself if you're a slave. You can never get free if you're a slave without any help. Someone has to help you. Someone has to buy you. Someone has to redeem you. Otherwise, you stay a slave forever. And you say, okay, let's say that you're right. We can't free ourselves apart from Jesus. Practically speaking, how does sin actually enslave us? And enslaves us, how does it do it practically? And I think the way this works is first by producing compelling desires. It's the first way it enslaves us. Sin enslaves us by making anything look better than Jesus. At its core, sin is desiring and preferring something else instead of Jesus. Whether it's food, or drugs, or sex, or money, sin attempts to make these things look better than Jesus himself. Practically, that's how it enslaves us. And the second issue with sin is that when it does enslave us, unless someone intervenes, it eventually leads us to hell. And and you would think that knowing that as the eventuality of where we're going, that that would be some serious motivation to take care of, like, man, we're going to take care of business. I don't want to go to hell, right? And, And yet, I think you'll find when people are being honest, like I remember this one young man who came up to me after service, he said, I do desire things more than Jesus. That's why I'm not a Christian. Because I, I don't want to let go of those things. I truly love those things, and I would rather hold on to them than to hold on to Christ. That's enslavement. That's enslavement. So he's like, I don't want to be enslaved. Okay, what's the solution? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples. And my disciples, they they know the truth, and that truth will set them free. Not if you pray a prayer, are you truly my disciples? Nope. If you abide, if you remain, if you stay. You see, for like that young man that came to talk to me, the, the God of this world had blinded him. It really blinded him. Because, I mean, think about like the contemplation of the end of the road, hell. Like as desirable as the sin may be that enslaves us, I don't think most people, if they have the opportunity, if they're being genuinely honest in a very sober moment, they would say, I don't want to go to hell. And the problem is for many of those same people, they don't see clearly that at the end of the road, uh, there is this cliff and they're about to go over it. And some will even come to me and they'll say, well, I can always hit the brakes. I had a roommate. It's like, I can stay on this road for a while longer. I don't have to get off yet. Besides, I can always hit the brakes before the cliff. Like, I can always repent later. I can always ask forgiveness later because I like staying on this road. I want to enjoy the highway to hell. 
a little bit longer before I have to get off. And Jesus is saying here, get off! Turn around, you're going to die! He's warning him, stop right now before it's too late! And so many people just ignore the warning. And so one question that I get when it comes to this topic in verse 34, he uses that phrase, he makes a practice of sinning. They'll say, Joe, I'm, I, I'm a Christian, at least I think I'm a Christian, but I keep sinning. Does that mean that I'm not saved? Does that mean that I'm still a slave to sin? Does that mean I'm not abiding in Christ? Does that mean I'm not a real believer? Because now I'm concerned. I've listened to you for the last three and a half minutes, and now I'm legitimately concerned. I would say to that person, the very fact that you even have the self-awareness to ask that question, I think, reveals a certain sensitivity that most, if not all, non-Christians don't have. Okay? For that, that specific sin that you, you, you struggle with, right? The fact that you, you, you even get to the point where you're asking the question, wow, is that me? Could that be me? Is, reveals, I think, a certain level of sensitivity that most non-Christians don't have. They, they don't care. See, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That, the word practice, that word in the Greek literally means to manufacture, to produce, to work. And, and the reality is the same guy who, who, who's writing this, he writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John uh, clearly knows that we are, we're going to struggle with sin at times in our lives. For the Christian, it can be very discouraging at times. For the Christian, oftentimes, it can look like two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, oh man, I, you fall back into, the, into that sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, the individual who practices sin, he's not thinking about two steps, one, two steps forward, one step back. He's not thinking, man, I, I messed up again. Man, I really need to fight this better. I need to have better accountability. I need to do all these different things. That person who makes a practice of sin, he doesn't care. Like I said, the word literally means manufacturing. Like manufacture, produce. He's like, let's just keep cranking this sin out, man. Like, man, 24-7, we're not taking a day off. Sin, 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 sin. No battling, no fighting, no sensitivity. So yeah, I think there is a difference. Now, that doesn't mean if, if you raise the question right now, okay, I thought I wasn't a Christian. Joe just clarified that. I think I am actually a Christian. Okay, that doesn't mean that maybe there isn't stuff. Maybe the fact that you even like have those thoughts or you raise the question, maybe it's because there is stuff you need to repent of. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Maybe there is stuff in your life you need to repent of. Maybe there is stuff in your life you need to seek the forgiveness of the Lord for. And so we continue. In verse 35, he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Um, here is what is going on. The Jews, they think of themselves as sons of Abraham. In reality, they're not. They're just slaves to sin. And, and so to understand what Jesus is saying is this. When it comes to sons and slaves, slaves, they don't have a permanent place in the family. Whereas a son, they do. If they're a genuine son. Not like a pretend son. If they're a legit son, they got a place. And so when it comes to freedom, when it comes to liberty, true freedom is not the ability to do anything we please, but rather to do what we ought to do. And here's the big challenge that we face. There 
are elements of our unredeemed nature that wants to please itself by doing the things we know we shouldn't do. And this is a very real struggle. It's not an unusual struggle, it's a real struggle. Look at Romans chapter 7. This is, this is something the Apostle Paul battled with in knowing, yes, I know what I should do, but there's times in my life that I don't do the thing that I should do, even though I want to do the thing, and I end up inevitably not doing it. Like, it doesn't always rise to the occasion. Read Romans 7. And so what Jesus is saying is this, you guys have a huge problem. Even though the Jews were Abraham's descendants and part of God's chosen nation, they were slaves, not sons, and in danger of eternally forfeiting the privileges they had received. They were on that highway to hell and not thinking that there could ever possibly be a cliff in front of them. And Jesus is just warning them again and again and again and again. And so we come to verse 37. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with the Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Oh, oh, oh. huge implication here. Because we know who Jesus' Father is. And Jesus is very clearly saying, My Father and your Father ain't the same guy. <laughs> That's huge. It's Especially for many Christians today who approach, say, the, the topic of Israel in such a way that they can do no wrong. In a way that I've heard people say that, well, we worship the same God as them. If, if this is shocking, just remember, I, I'm just reading the Bible story. Okay? Just read it. I'm just retelling it. Like, I didn't say verse 38. Jesus said, verse 38, it's clearly offensive. And oh, by the way, it's about to get even more offensive. So just hang on. Verse 39, they answered him, ha, huh, how dare you? Huh. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You should know that many people today really do not like John chapter 8. Some would even refer to it as anti-Semitic. Richard Hayes, professor of New Testament studies at Duke, uh, School of Duke Divinity School, if you could call it a divinity school. <laughs> he says, the dialogue of John chapter 8, 39 to 47, is the most deeply disturbing outburst of anti-Jewish sentiment in the New Testament, end quote. So yeah, a lot of people, a lot of liberal theologians, they don't like John chapter 8 even calling it anti-Semitic. But what you have to understand is the real reason that Jewishness is so important here in this story is because Jewishness represents the kind of religious, ethnic, moral self-justification that all religions and really all people use when they're confronted by Jesus. That's, that's why Jewishness matters here in the story. Jewishness in the story in John 8, it's an illustration of the way all of us try to evade Jesus and bypass his words, showing that we are all slaves of sin without him. To be clear, it isn't only Jews who don't want to hear that they're slaves. No one wants to be told, you're wrong, you're a slave. No one wants to hear that. I was having a conversation with uh, one of the guys at church this week, and... I told him how I frequently find myself as sort of the church lightning rod at times. And by that I mean, 
if, if someone's going to get into trouble, if someone's going to be angered at someone, I would say 51% of the time that person, if I had to guess, is me. Because truthfully, I'm regularly in a position in which I'm saying things that people just don't want to hear. And, and when you say things that people don't want to hear, they usually get upset at you, just like right here. Because that's the point here. Like when people get offended, they will often use any religious or ethnic moral self-justification to sort of gain the moral high ground to be able to dismiss what you're saying. Or, or they'll say things like this. Well, I, uh, I grew up in church and I just had a really bad experience. Which I'm always like, what does that even mean? Uh, well, you know, I had a really bad experience in church. Which is usually code for, I had a bad experience because the church talked about sin and then I felt convicted. So the, the, the people uh, Jesus is talking to are trying to grab the moral high ground because they don't like what Jesus is saying to them when he says, Abraham was not a murderer, yet you're trying to kill me. Abraham obeyed and loved the truth. You guys only reject it when I tell it to you. Abraham welcomed God in Genesis 18. You guys rejected me. Or as the great A.W. Tozer would say, the church will be at the height of its heresy when it calls obedience legalism. It will. I'll say it again if you're taking notes. The church will be at the height of its heresy when it calls obedience legalism. And so he says in verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. And then they said to him, it's really random right here. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. See what I mean? It's like random. It says, you're doing the works your father did. Uh, coupled with the previous verse, Jesus is making it very clear that they may be biological children of Father Abraham, but they are certainly not spiritual children. As one commentator notes, his charge makes them out to be spiritual bastards. So what do they do? They lash out. He says, we were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, they are implying that his birth, unlike theirs, was illegitimate. But where does that even come from? They bring this up because apparently there was this rumor about Jesus that during his life he was born of sexual immorality. The rumor being, of course, his mom got pregnant before she got married. But why say this? Like, what does that get people? It gets them moral superiority. It gets them the moral high ground. In other words, Jesus, you can't correct us. Jesus, you can't tell us that we're wrong because you were born into a morally degenerate situation and we weren't. And Jesus said to them, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. They, they just brag that God is their father. Jesus says, no, actually, he, he's not. God's not your father. So the bottom line is this. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. It doesn't matter what denomination you claim. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. In, in case you think this is the only place that Jesus talks this way, as if to somehow maybe undo this statement, he says the same thing in 523 and 1523. And that's because true Jewishness, Jesus says, is not a bloodline. It's a faith and obedience line. And if you ever wondered where Paul got his theology in Romans 9, wonder no more. It's right here. And so he continues, verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father. Oh boy. Think about how offensive this is right now. These are people who prize their ethnicity. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What he had implied in verses 38 and 41, he now very bluntly states, and that is, despite being biological descendants of Father Abraham, spiritually and morally, they're children of the devil. Or as the proverb goes, like father, like son. He says, you're just like him. The devil. You being Jewish doesn't change this truth. You're just like your father, the devil. Are you like them? Are you like them? This guy, the devil, who was a murderer and liar from the beginning, which is probably a reference to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden in which he robbed Adam and Eve of spiritual life. He brought death to the entire race. And the truth is this continues today. The devil robs people of spiritual life by lying to them. And, and, and by lying, he murders them. As 2 Corinthians 11 would say, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But Jesus says in verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. There is an inability on their part in which they are both unable and unwilling to receive the truth. And the reality is this is true for every single unbeliever. We know in chapter 6 of John's gospel, he says this repeatedly. Of course, 644 is the one that comes to my mind. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you come to Jesus, it's because the Father has drawn you. If you haven't come to Jesus, it's because the Father hasn't drawn you. See, I don't like your interpretation. I'm, like, I'm just reading the verse. Okay? Keep that in mind. And so he continues. He says this, verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you does? If I tell the truth, why would you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Isn't that interesting? How do you hear the words of God? You're of God. That doesn't make logical sense, does it? And we normally say, all right, if you want to be of God, you need to listen to the words of God. He says, no, no, the only way you're even able to hear is because you are of God. In other words, there's this, there's this pointing to God did it. God did that work in your life. God made it happen. This huge pointing to the sovereignty of God in all things. This should, this should create a humility in our lives and, 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 and magnify the, the glory of God. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. I read that today and I was like, did you see that, Joe? Wow, right there. We don't, we don't logic or reason like that. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And, and if you notice, Jesus does not, by the way, in this passage, in verse 46 and 47, he doesn't ask whether he thinks anyone is guilty of sin. Like, clearly people think he's guilty of, of sin, 
But thinking someone's guilty of sin, is, that's a really big difference than being proven guilty of that sin. And so the rationale is like this. If he was not guilty, then he must be telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, well, then what objection could they possibly have for ignoring him? Like, what reason could they give for rejecting him? No further questions is what I would say. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, we are not right. Excuse me, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Have, uh, we'll just pull everybody in the room real quick. Have you ever met someone before and they got really, really frustrated with you? Um, you're having a big disagreement. You're telling them the truth. They're like, no, I disagree. You push back, you're confronting them. And like the truth is like literally right there. And they just get more frustrated and then they result to personal attacks. Anybody ever have that? Yeah, you met someone? Okay, some people have that. Um, that's what's happening right now. That's what's, that's what's happening right now. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's, that's what is happening. They are res, they're resorting to personal attacks. And so he says, verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. Not like you guys. There is one who seeks it, yes, I'm not seeking after my own glory, but there is somebody who's seeking after it, and he is the judge. What he's saying is every single person lives for their own glory. I mean, that's, that's how most people approach anything in life. Most, most of us, if we're approaching a, a different type of decision, it's, will I come ahead? If I make this decision, will it benefit me? We, we always are, are seeking our own glory. I mean, there's a, a human tendency to do that. We want to paint ourselves in the best possible light. If you don't believe me, just, just think about like what you're going to say and how you're going to dress and behave on a very first date with someone of the opposite sex, right? Like, the, like that's usually what I tell girls all the time. It's when, when you're first getting to know a guy, that's when he's supposed to be on his best behavior. So if he's not, like you should probably drop him like he's hot. Just some good, loving, pastoral advice there. But we always try to do that, right? We always want to paint ourselves in the best possible light. Like no one goes out of their way and they think, you know what, I want to upload some like pictures of social media of like me looking like my absolute worst. Like no one, no one does that. Like I want to I wanna upload some pictures of what I look like at the very second I wake up in the morning. No one does that. And what he's saying is this, unlike you guys, the only thing that I care about is what God thinks. Oh, that we would have that type of like mindset. The only thing I care about is what God thinks. Man's opinion is immaterial. God's approval is everything. And so, we continue. He says this in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Oh, yeah, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. This is the great gotcha moment of the story. Like, if they haven't been able to find, like, the smoking gun, well, man, they found it now. They've got all the evidence they need, and that is because if Abraham died, if the prophets died also, well, they were convinced now that Jesus must have been deranged. And so, verse, verse 53, are you greater, they say to Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And they ask this question of Jesus, but the problem with the question that they ask is that it completely misses the central point that Jesus is making. And that is, Jesus does not make himself or exalt himself to be anything. He only cares about the Father's opinion. 
Jesus answered, verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus says, If I do get glory, the glory is coming from my Father. That's it, nobody else. Verse 55, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. I keep his word. Where have we heard that before, right? You see this abiding theme over and over again. And then he continues, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Muslims love to point out that nowhere did Jesus ever claim to be God. It's like their, their biggest point that they're going to bring up if you ever get into a conversation with them to refute Christianity. And the problem is um, that's just not true, including right here. And that's because when, when he says before Abraham was I am, like, like the, the Greek word there, like I am, you're like, what, what is, what, how, how do you explain that? Like it's, uh, he's literally saying like I am, like, M in the Greek, like, exist. Before Abraham was, I am. I existed. It's abundantly clear that he is claiming divinity, and if that seems unclear at all, just look at the crowd's response. It, the, the reason that they're picking up stones to try to kill him is because they understand perfectly what he's saying. They disagree with it, yes, but they understand nonetheless. What he has said is blasphemous because he's made a claim to be God right here. And as we see repeatedly here, they try to kill him, but what? It's not his time. And this is always so encouraging to me because it's just as true for every single one of us who are believers, who do abide and remain in him, who are legit Christians. It's not his time. They try to kill him at the end of chapter 8, but like you can't take his life. He, he lays it down. He picks it up. Just like for any of us, like God's going to determine when you leave this world, no one else. If you're a Christian, you're going to leave this world on God's schedule. No one else is. Oh, that just brings, I think, such a sense of comfort. And, and even though the, the Jews were Abraham's descendants and, and part of God's chosen nation, they were like slaves, not sons and in danger. They're, they're in such danger. Some, some of you might be in the same type of danger of eternally forfeiting the privileges they had received. Like over and over again, Jesus, he tries to warn them. And you say, man, it's one thing to warn them. It's a whole other thing to like try to fix the problem entirely. Well, Jesus does that too. He doesn't just warn them. He fixes the problem entirely. Or have you not heard what Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeemed. He bought us, right? That's what you do with slaves. You buy them. You redeem them by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, practically speaking, when Jesus redeems us from slavery, here's, here's what happens. He gives us eyes to see eyes to view our Savior as more to be desired than anything else in the world, that's the essence of true freedom. To be able to really see that. To be able to see that Jesus is better. The sad truth is, for many Christians today, is despite being set free, they still live like they're slaves to sin. 
They still live like Israel, desiring to go back to Egypt even though they've already been rescued. That, I think, is perhaps one of the saddest things. And so if that's you, I want to pray for you. I want the team to come. Lord, some of us, Lord, I imagine in this room right now have been set free and we belong to you, but we have not been living in freedom. We've been living as if we're still slaves. We've been living as if we're still back in Egypt. It's just so stupid. Some of us have been so stupid this last week and running and fleeing toward these these things that you've already set us free from. And we thank you that you have. We thank you that you have set us free. God, help us to live in that freedom. Help us to see you. Seriously, God, help us to see you as better than the things that are trying to enslave us and pull us back into Egypt. We need you. We love you. God, help us. Help us to love you by obedience. And we pray this in your name. Amen.